Colossians chapter 1, um, if you found your place, we're going to read verses 9 through 14. Verses 9 through 14. I'll read our text in full, and then I'll give you my title uh, for tonight's sermon. Paul writes, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. I have three titles for tonight. My first title is, How Do I Change Anyway? I'm not going to use that one because just with the nature of having a slideshow to help with a sermon, I can really only have one title slide. That's all, that's all Eli designed for me was one title slide, so we're not going to use that title. My second title is, Why Do We Sin When We Know So Much? I couldn't use that one either. So here's the one I went with, title number three. What is spiritual growth? What is spiritual growth? growth. Let's pray before we begin. Father, as we come to your word tonight, we recognize that without hearing from you, without knowing you and knowing what you want for our lives, that we are, we are totally helpless as your people. So as we listen to your word, as we, as we put ourselves under your word, may we be receptive. May you give us the faith to believe what it says about you and about us, and may you help us to obey what it calls us to do. What we don't know, use your word to teach us. What we don't have that we need, use your word to give us. And what we are not yet that you want us to be, use your word to make us. For Christ's sake, amen. What is spiritual growth? When I think about the Colossians, something interesting about this church, this group of Christians in the first century, is that they're they're one of the few churches Paul wrote to, that we know of, that he had never personally met. Paul didn't uh, start the church in Colossae like he started a lot of other churches that we see letters to, uh, letters addressed to in the New Testament, but even though Paul had never met them, he prayed for them. And really, verses 3 through 14, this introduction of the letter is a prayer report. Paul writes to them to tell them 
I've heard about you. I know a little bit about what's going on. I know what your challenges are. And I just want you to know I am praying for you. Now, wouldn't it have been encouraging for you if you lived in one of those early Christian communities? Wouldn't it have been encouraging for you, for your little assembly, to get a letter from the Apostle Paul where he said he was praying for you? You A lot of people tell us they're praying for us, and sometimes we believe them. And sometimes they're telling the truth, right? But wouldn't it have been amazing to know how Paul prayed for you. And now what's interesting is that is there's something really neat about this text because uh, it wasn't just for the Colossians, it's been kept for us as well. This is one of those letters that was copied and that was passed around. So churches beyond this single church read this letter and understood more about God and the Christian life from this letter. So as interesting as it is in that it tells us how Paul prayed for churches, it offers us more than that. Here's kind of how it breaks up in verses 3 through 8. Paul talks about how he prayed for them in the sense of thanksgiving, how he thanked God for them. In verses 9 through 14, which is what we're going to look at tonight, Paul's going to tell them how he intercedes for them. In other words, this is what the Apostle Paul is asking God to do for these Christians in Colossae. So this, for the Colossians, the first way this text functions is to show them, you know, quite literally, this is how Paul's praying for us, right? Now, it doesn't do that for us, does it? Because, unfortunately... Paul's not praying for us right now, right? Paul's not literally praying for us, but this text still helps us in this way. This is how this text functions for us as Christians today. When Paul intercedes for them, he he shows them his God-given vision for how spiritual growth works, how they would mature in Christ, how they would grow up in Jesus. And Paul's vision for how spiritual growth works still shows us how spiritual growth works. So even though Paul isn't praying for Fellowship Baptist Church in liberal Kansas, Paul shows us in verses 9 through 14 what it means for us to grow spiritually. And for that reason, this text serves as simply basic teaching about how to grow as a Christian. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you front and center... Um, the, the main idea of this text right at the beginning, okay? And then we're going to spend the sermon working it out. So uh, here's what I'm going to be unpacking tonight from our text in Colossians chapter 1. Spiritual growth is maturing in knowledge of Christ and conduct in Christ motivated by gratitude for Christ. Spiritual growth is maturing in knowledge of Christ, and conduct in Christ. And and all of that maturing, maturing in knowledge, and maturing in conduct, what we know, and how we behave, how we live, all of that is done in this context of gratitude for what Christ has done for us. So, to to follow this text, we're just going to ask two questions. Number one, what does spiritual growth involve? What does it look like? And then number two, how is spiritual growth motivated? So, question number one. Verses 9 through 11 are going to help us answer this question. What does spiritual growth involve? How does it manifest itself? 
we talk about other Christians and sometimes we'll ask, are they growing? Are they mature as disciples of Jesus? And sometimes we'll say, they're not growing or it doesn't appear that they're growing. Now, when, when we talk about that kind of thing, biblically, how should we even think about that? What does it really look like? What are the evidences? What are, are the fruits of growing and maturing as a follower of Jesus. Well, there, there's two things Paul gives us in verses 9 through 11. And, and this is in the, in the context of how he prayed for them. First of all, Paul prayed that, that these believers in Colossae would increasingly know God's will. Okay, So spiritual growth, number one, involves increasingly knowing God's will. Now, Paul's going to address how they live. He's going to address their decisions and how they conduct themselves, how they behave. But he doesn't begin by praying that they would live or behave a certain way. He doesn't begin by praying for them that they would live like followers of Jesus, although we're going to get there. He, He begins by praying that they would think like followers of Jesus. By increasingly, more and more each day, coming to know what the will of the Lord is. You see this? In verse 9, he wants them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and wisdom and spiritual understanding that is, I believe in this context, understanding, understanding given by the Holy Spirit. He says that this is what their prayer, Paul and his companions, this is what their prayer has been, first of all, that they would know God's will. If the Colossian believers are growing spiritually, they will increasingly be characterized by knowing God's will. Now, the word filled here means just that. It means that they need to be characterized by it. It's not, this isn't like spatial filling. And when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit like takes up some sort of physical space and that he eventually you know, fills 100% of you versus 90% or 80%. The idea of being filled with the Spirit means that you are dominated by or characterized by, your, your actions are controlled by the Holy Spirit. And this is how the New Testament often uses this word filling. It talks about uh, people being filled with joy in the Bible. That, that doesn't mean that there's some uh, like physical space that joy occupies. It means everything they do is characterized by joy. Other people are filled in the New Testament with unrighteousness. So in other words, everything they do is, is just pervaded by this sense of unrighteousness. So Paul wants them to be filled by, to be characterized by knowing the will of God so that everything that they do flows out of this. He wants them to be characterized by a knowledge of God's will. So for us today, if a Christian, here's here's the first fruit, the first evidence, this is what spiritual growth looks like. If a Christian is growing in the Lord, that believer will increasingly know the will of God. Now, that may sound scary to you, but it shouldn't sound scary. It shouldn't sound scary. Now, if you study the context of the Church of Colossae, one of the, um, one of the, uh, the elements that they were facing, one of the main reasons that it seems Paul decided to write this letter to them, they were facing a lot of false teachers. In this case, it doesn't appear to be Jewish false teachers as much as pagan false teachers promoting a, a combination of different folk religions. And common to these different folk religions was this idea that people needed secret knowledge, 
that they needed to become a part of these different cults and they needed to unpack these pagan mysteries. And when they did that, when they became enlightened, when they became one of the elite through these various occult practices, then they would really be living. And Paul combats that. Paul says that's completely wrong. They don't need that. They don't need some sort of uh, secret knowledge. They do need to be growing in knowledge, though, but it's a different kind of knowledge. Not the knowledge they would get by going to some cave ritual somewhere. Not the knowledge they would get by cutting themselves or finding some oracle or by going into a mountain with a small group of people. No, they would need the knowledge of the will of the Lord. That's how they would grow. Now, the problem for us today is that often when believers talk about God's will, they are talking about something that the Bible does not address. That is, God, this idea that God owes us yes or no's as we face particular choices in life. The Bible does not speak about this. Here's some examples where people uh, this idea of knowing God's will comes into play. And this is why I think if you, know, if you tell people growing as a Christian means you're going to grow in God's will, that's very scary to some people, right? Some people think knowing God's will means God's going to tell me who I'm going to marry. The Bible doesn't teach that. Now, you may get some sort of dream or vision or sign that you're supposed to marry someone. Um, most, pe- most of us don't get that. The Bible does teach us how to make wise choices in that area. For instance, you should marry a Christian. And if you think about Proverbs, it'd be better to marry a wise person than a foolish person. There's all sorts of biblical texts we could bring to bear on that conversation, but this is not a matter of getting a yes or a no answer from God. Some younger Christians are really concerned about God's will when it comes to college. And they feel like God's going to tell them where to go to college. And this is really frustrating if God hasn't told you, right? It's like, what college am I supposed to go to? Okay, God is, uh, you know, the, the, the fleece is wet, so God told me to go to this college. But then you have another question, right? If God is that specific in what he reveals, what is my major supposed to be? Most people switch majors. And then what elective should I take? And if I'm going to take this class, which professor should I take it with? And if you go down that rabbit hole, it becomes very, very, very frustrating. Some people feel like that God's going to tell them a specific vocation to have. And they demand these yes or no answers from God. Now I want to encourage you when you read the New Testament that that rather frightening idea of God's will is nowhere to be found. God's will has much more to do with who we are becoming in Jesus and much less to do with arbitrary decisions. God may not tell you whether to list your house, But he will tell you, as 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, that the will of the Lord is your sanctification. You want to know what God's will is? Be holy. Be sanctified. Become more like Jesus. That's what God's will is. That's what Paul is talking about here. Knowing what God wants us to do and increasingly knowing how that looks in our lives. The primary way the scriptures speak of God's will is his desires for his people that's revealed in his word. That's how David speaks about it in the Psalms. I'd like to do your will, O God. Yea, your law is within my heart. What's the will of God? His law, what he's revealed, what he has said to do. Don't practice idolatry. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't lust. Don't covet. And here we find the will of God for his people. And Paul says, 
then that God's will involves, uh, if you look at the whole of his letters, involves growing in holiness, praying without ceasing, being joyful in the face of suffering. Again, not arbitrary decisions. So the Colossians needed to grow in the knowledge of God's will. Now, if it doesn't mean those arbitrary decisions, then what does growing in the knowledge of God's will mean? What, what does that mean anyway? Well, here's one way to think about it. Growing in knowing God's will means that we, we um, uh, more and more come to understand how his commands intersect our daily lives. Okay? So uh, if you're a new Christian, you may be familiar with the Ten Commandments. God tells us in the Ten Commandments to not commit adultery. But as you grow as a Christian, you discover Jesus takes it a little bit deeper in the Sermon on the Mount and says not only should you not commit adultery, you shouldn't even have the hard attitude of adultery, which is lust. God's will for you then is not just to not commit adultery, but to not even lust. And as you grow in knowing the will of God, you'll become more aware of the temptations around you that push you toward lust. You'll become more aware of how your flesh and how your circumstances and how the culture is going to exploit these temptations in your life so you know what to stay away from. You begin to practice better habits and and make better decisions to keep those temptations at bay. So what is growing in the knowledge of God's will when it comes to lust? It's more and more getting to understand how what God has told me intersects with my daily life. And I become more and more aware of how to not displease God in these ways. It's taking all the commands of the Bible and figuring out until we die, how that fits into Monday morning. That's growing in the knowledge of God's will, becoming more acquainted with how God wants us to live. But then he tells them something else in verse 10. Paul's not only concerned that they know God's will, but that they grow in their conduct. That is, how they live for Jesus. And how do they need to live for Jesus? They need to live lives that are worthy of Jesus. They need to walk, or that means behave, conduct themselves in a worthy way. Now, when we think about the word worthy, we often associate it with merit, being a good person, earning something, right? I think of like Thor's hammer. You, you, You have to be worthy to wield the hammer. And that's oftentimes how we use this word when we think about it biblically. We could also say instead of worthy, we could, uh, we could say that Paul's talking about something that's uh, fitting or appropriate. Live appropriately, live fitting. Fitting in comparison to what? What's the, what's the factor here? It's being worthy or living a life fitting, appropriate for a follower of Jesus. Now being a follower of Jesus means that there are certain things that it's just not fitting for me to do. Right? Plumbers don't climb on roofs. I don't, I don't like to climb on roofs. They scare me. I like to stay away from ladders as much as I can. There's things that we do as Christians that are not fitting if we're going to follow Christ. There are habits that don't belong. There are patterns of speech that don't belong. 
There are ways we talk to other people or a spouse or a coworker. There are patterns of speech that there are things that we say that we shouldn't because we're followers of Jesus. There's entertainment and reading and images. The consumption of which does not fit with a follower of Christ. We're to live worthy. That means a way that is appropriate in light of the fact that we're connected to Jesus. And specifically here, it's the Lord Jesus who is in view in verse 10. It is the ethical character of Christ that the Christian should keep in sight as he walks this path, as he grows spiritually. Jesus' life that that we see in the Gospels shows believers how to know and obey the Father. The way Jesus interacts with people. The way he takes time to listen. The way he gets to the questions underneath the questions. The large amount of time he spends alone in prayer. There's a certain way as you read the Gospels, as you come to know the Gospels, as you start to imbibe the Gospels into your lives, there's a certain way that Jesus conducted himself. He just didn't appear in a manger and then hang on a cross. He lived a perfect life. And, and yes, that perfect life and his obedience was part of our substitution. It was that perfect life that made his sacrifice perfect. I, I get that. This plays into our justification. But also the Bible teaches that the way Jesus lived is an example, the ultimate example for how you and I should live. The way Jesus loved. Jesus is washing feet and he tells his disciples, do for each other what I have done for you while I've been here with you. In other words, the lesson about uh, the the image of Jesus washing uh, people's feet is not for Christians to look at later and say, wow, look at how much Jesus loves us. Although it should do that, but it takes us a step further. This is how I treat my brothers and sisters in Christ. The way Jesus lives informs and shapes and radically changes how I'm supposed to live. And therefore, there are things that are not fitting. They're not worthy for me to do as I follow Jesus. They don't belong. They don't fit. But Jesus is in view here, his perfect life. And and notice at the end of verse 10, by the way, that as they increasingly live lives worthy of Jesus, as their conduct slowly starts to match up with this amazing person that they're following, they also this also leads to an an increase in knowledge. The end of verse 10, increasing in the knowledge of God. So there's a kind of spiral here. They grow in their knowledge of God's will, knowing what God wants them to do, knowing how, what, how God's commands intersect their daily lives. As they grow in the knowledge of what God wants them to do, they start doing those things and living more like Jesus. And as they live more like Jesus, they start finding out more about what it looks like, what God's will is for them, what he wants them to do, which leads them to live more like Jesus. Do you see this? It's this beautiful, glorious spiral of knowledge and conduct and knowledge and conduct that goes on until we die and we meet the Lord and we are the finished product that God wants us to be when we are glorified. Christians have a tendency to either focus on one or the other. Either knowledge or conduct. There are Christians... Who, who try to practice the cold golden rule, try to be kind to other people, but they never crack open a Bible. 
And then there are Christians who will read a hundred theology books a year, but they'll never do anything kind for anyone. Both of those are very imbalanced, and both of those versions of growing spiritually are artificial. Because Paul tells us spiritual growth involves both. Growing in the knowledge of God's will, what he wants for you, how he wants you to live, and then growing in your conduct, living life appropriately as one who follows Christ. Then verse 11, this is really important. Paul says, their living worthy of Jesus is empowered by God for God's glory. This is not a call to to self-improvement. This is not a call to be better boys and girls and make God happy. This is not a call to get up tomorrow and try harder. Paul says that all of this, this growing in knowledge, growing in conduct, growing up in Christ, comes out of the empowerment of God. God helps us do this. God helps us know his will more and more. God helps us live like Jesus more and more. God empowers us to do this. That means this is a glorious thing. If spiritual growth comes out of God's power and not our own, that means um, even the virtues that we may be most unlikely to exhibit are possible. This is why spiritual growth is not self-improvement. Now, there there are a lot of good resources on self-improvement. There's this book and this test called the Strengths Finder. How many of you heard of? Have you heard of, or you've taken the Strengths Finder test? I'm not criticizing it. I think it's really helpful. And what the Strengths Finder test, the, the philosophy of it is this. And I think in your vocation, this makes a lot of sense. Instead of trying to focus on your weakest areas and bring all of them up to uh, par. It focuses on two or three things that you're especially good at and becoming even better at those. Because in the marketplace, if you want to get hired, you're probably not going to get hired for, you know, being average at 47 things. Your job security is going to be dependent on you doing one or two things really, really well. Now, that's the philosophy of the book, and I think it's, I think it's helpful. I think that stuff is helpful. However, we must not make this mistake when it comes to what the Holy Spirit is doing in you and me as he makes us more like Jesus. There are areas where you may be naturally weakened. These are your signature sins, the sins that easily beset you, as the writer of Hebrews says. There are areas where you may think, personally, you'll never be able to grow in your own power. And you're right. You're right. But spiritual growth is not taking one or two virtues that you're already good at and getting even better at them. Spiritual growth means that God, in this radical move through the Holy Spirit, is invading enemy territory, he's going into your sin nature, and he's taking every area of your life in which you are not like Jesus and slowly making you more like Jesus. You may think, well, I'm not a patient person at all. Okay, the Holy Spirit is going to make you patient. You may think, well, I have trouble with anger. Right, God's going to conquer that. You won't be able to conquer it. But God will conquer it in his time through the Spirit. So this is all empowered by God. So what does it look like to grow spiritually? Increasingly knowing the will of God, increasingly living like a follower of Jesus. Question number two. How is spiritual growth motivated? Okay, Paul, we know what you want to see But how exactly does this happen? How does this happen? After all, we don't grow by sheer force of will. Whatever your strongest sin is, you can give yourself all the pep talks, 
all the self-motivational speeches that you want. You can even be very forceful in your decisions. I'm not going to do that anymore, but you're still going to do it. And the reason is, Mark 7, your sin does not come from outside of you. It's not external. An inner resolution of your soul isn't going to fix it because your soul is the problem. It comes from you. All the evil and the iniquity and the temptations and desires that upset us are in our hearts and they're going to come out. So we don't change by sheer force of will. That's not the motivation. No. Paul gives us the motivation in verses 12 through 14. What, is the whole, what motivation does the Holy Spirit use to change us to be people who increasingly know God's will and increasingly live like Jesus? And here it is. We sang about it a moment ago. Gratitude. Gratitude. That is how verse 12 begins. Now, notice your Bible. Look down at verse 12. Please look, look at your Bible if you have it in front of you. Look at those first two words, giving thanks. I want you to understand something. Uh, This this is not a three-part list, like a sermon. Paul is not saying, all right, know the will of God, live like Jesus, and number three, you should also be a thankful person. No, that's not what he's saying. Rather, giving thanks is the atmosphere in which they increasingly know God's will and increasingly live like Jesus. In fact, there is what is called an inclusio, which is just a fancy way of saying there's bookends with this idea of giving thanks in verse 3 and verse 12. Paul begins his prayer by giving thanks for them. Paul ends his prayer in verses 12 through 14 by telling them they give thanks. In other words, this whole journey of spiritual growth happens in the context or the atmosphere of gratitude to God. That's the motivation. All of their growing, all of their spiritual progress is done in the context of gratitude. Gratitude is what would lead to their growing in knowledge. They give thanks as they continually understand more and more what the will of the Lord is. Gratitude is going to lead them to grow in their conduct. They're giving thanks and then out of that and from that they increasingly live like Jesus' followers. Gratitude is the motivation for spiritual growth. Okay, giving thanks for what, Paul? How do we get, what do we give thanks for? We give thanks unto the Father, verse 12. Number one, he's made us meet or qualified for an inheritance. They've been qualified for an inheritance. They are now the saints in light. Throughout the Bible, there is this ongoing connection, this thread between becoming God's people and then receiving an inheritance. The Old Testament, which was a picture and shadow of things to come, they got a land. In the New Testament, it's not that we get less than that, because in the end we get a new earth, right? It actually gets a lot better. We're not just talking about a strip of land. We're getting a new heaven and a new earth, a new kingdom entirely. But but throughout the Bible, there is this idea that God takes unqualified people and then qualifies them so we can give them something they don't deserve. In fact, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, when God is talking about his people going into the land, he says through Moses, don't think I'm giving you these promises. Don't think I'm giving you this inheritance because you are so good. I'm not giving it to you because you're good. I'm giving it to you because I'm gracious. And this, friends, is precisely what God does for us in Christ. 
We have a new inheritance. We are the saints in life. We have been made qualified by God. Number two, he delivered them to another kingdom. Verse 13. He's delivered us from the power of darkness. And he's translated us or transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. We're in another kingdom. Now this is... Uh, this move is different than how we move today, right? When you think about the, the ancient world and, and, and kingdoms, um, if you're living in a city that was once ruled by the Greeks and now it's ruled by the Romans, I mean, like, literally everything changes. Everything changes. Uh, in the context of Philippi, another uh, city that Paul wrote letters to, uh, when the Romans took over Philippi after their, uh, their, uh, their final uh, rebellion, they would take placards in Latin, and substitute them for the placards that were in Greek, just totally change the language by sheer force of will. So the, when they think of kingdoms, they think of totally new administrations, totally different rules, totally different kings. It's very unlike what we have if we move like state to state in our country. But being transferred to another kingdom is a big deal. And Paul says that's what happened to them. They were in one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. They belonged to one rule. They belonged to one ruler. Now they're in a different one. Why, did, why is Paul telling them this? So they'll be grateful. So they will give thanks. So they will have gratitude. God has made them qualified for an inheritance. God has transferred them to another kingdom. And by the way, he didn't do this begrudgingly. It's the kingdom of his dear son. In other words, God is happy to have you on board. God's happy to have you in his family. He is happy to have you in his kingdom. He wasn't pushed to do this. It's in the kingdom of the son that he loves. And he loves you too. And then number three, they're they're to be grateful for this. Verse 14, that God has redeemed them from sin through the death of Jesus. It's his dear son, verse 14, in whom... In Jesus, in the Son, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. The believers in Colossae had a new redemption. This term refers to purchasing slaves from the slave block and setting them free. One of the images of sin in the Bible is slavery. Because as long as you're trapped in your sin, you don't have freedom. You're dominated by, your life is ran by evil, messed up desires. And you can't get out of it until Jesus frees you from it. He frees you from it. How did he do that? His death. That was the redemption price. And it was a high price, wasn't it? And he didn't pay it because we deserved it. And he he didn't pay it because of how great we are. He paid it because of his love for us. Something to be grateful for, isn't it? Do you see what Paul's doing? Now you think, well, okay, these are just... David, why, are we, why is Paul talking about all these random facts about salvation? I thought spiritual growth means knowing God's will and living for Jesus. Right. But there is no growth in knowledge and there is no real growth in conduct without gratitude. Without gratitude. Gratitude is the soil in which the flowers of knowing God's will and living like Jesus grow. And without gratitude, we never grow in knowledge and we never grow in our conduct. These believers, had a, like us, had a new inheritance, a new deliverance, and a new redemption. 
all of it by grace, all of it coming from God, and that was to be the fuel for their growing up in Christ. But the truth about spiritual growth was not only for this first century church, it's for us as well. The truth that spiritual growth looks like growing in knowledge and conduct and the truth that all of this can only be properly motivated by gratitude for God, that also applies to you and me. And it applies to how we grow as Christians, or if we grow, and how we grow as Christians. Well, David, how exactly does this meet us? How does this apply to us? Well, I I want you to think about it with me tonight, and we'll finish um, with a few questions, okay? We could call these like diagnostic questions to see how you're doing. Number one, do you increasingly know God's will? And again, I'm not talking about what car you should buy or what you order at McDonald's tomorrow. Do you increasingly know what God's will is for his people and how that plays into your day-to-day existence? If we are growing spiritually, then knowing how God wants me to think and live and behave is going to be my utmost priority. What does it mean to be more and more acquainted with the will of the Lord? Well, if you're married, then you are a spouse. But you're not just a spouse. You're, if you're a believer, you're a spouse who knows Jesus. And for spouses who knows Jesus, Ephesians 5 says that God has some particular expectations of you. To submit like we submit to Christ. To love and sacrifice ourselves, men, as Jesus loved and sacrificed himself for his people. Now, it's one thing to know that. And it's another thing to really know it. Growing as a Christian doesn't just mean you can quote Ephesians 5 and say, yeah, I'm supposed to love my wife like Jesus loved the church. It means you know what it really looks like to love your wife, how God wants you to respond to your wife like Jesus responds to his people when she asks your forgiveness, when you get in an argument, when there's maybe some conflict because you're making a difficult decision and you filter that and you filter your decision for how you're going to respond to your wife through this filter of I'm supposed to be like Jesus, how he treats his people, I'm supposed to love her and give myself for her. What does that mean in this conversation? How should that affect what I tell her next? Do you see the difference between generally knowing what God tells us to do and then knowing and growing in the knowledge of his will? This is true with parenting. As a parent, you know, generally, you're supposed to teach your kids about God and the Bible. You're supposed to impart a Christian worldview to them. I hope you know that. But it's one thing to know that, and it's another thing to know, how are we going to spend our time this week? What am I teaching my kids about God right now? How am I going to systematically teach them the truth of God's word? What am I going to let them watch? What am I not going to let them watch? How am I, uh, what friends are they going to spend time with? What am I not going to allow them to do? It's one thing to know I'm a parent. I have to raise kids before the face of God. It's another thing to grow in the knowledge of God's will to where it, it affects your daily decisions. And you begin to understand more and more how God wants you to act in these certain specific scenarios, which your life as a parent is going to be made up of.
Because I hope you see this, your decisions as a father and as a mother, there's no decisions made in vague generalities. We only get to live our lives in specific scenarios where we have to make specific decisions. So growing up as a Christian means you grow in knowing how God wants you to act as a parent in those specific decisions. Are you making progress in that? Are you more intentional as a parent and as a spouse than you were a year or two ago? Your evangelism. We know that the Great Commission tells us to make disciples. We know we're supposed to share the gospel with the world. But have you grown in the knowledge of God's will by becoming better and more insightful and more wise in how you connect the gospel to conversations, in how you start conversations, and how you develop evangelistic friendships? Has this command, this general command in Scripture, evangelize, has that sunken into your daily small decisions that you make with lost people that are all around you? We know we're supposed to fight temptation. Have you grown in the knowledge of how to fight temptation? Do you know your signature sins? Well, I struggle with all of them. Yes, but do you know the sins that particularly get you off the path? And have you become more strategic in fighting those sins? You know, uh, you've known from a child that the Bible says don't do them, but have you grown in the knowledge of God's will? Question number two, is your conduct, your behavior, your lifestyle increasingly appropriate for a follower of Jesus? In other words, are you walking worthy? As believers, we need to continually reevaluate our lives and ask, what's in my life that doesn't belong since I'm a follower of Christ? What's in my life that just doesn't fit? Is it something public? that other people, my friends and family, know about me? Or is it something private like my thought life? Does the way I think in the privacy of my own mind, is that fitting for someone who said, take up your cross and follow me? Who said, take your eyes out if it's necessary so you can get in the kingdom? Our culture teaches us to evaluate our behavior with these questions. What do I want? How does it help me express who I am? And what do I want to become? That's what our culture says. Have you seen any kids' movies lately? Jesus completely flips that upside down. And now, in the way of Jesus, we're to ask a totally different set of questions. What does God the Father want for my life? Not what do I want. People, All kinds of people will tell you what they want. Well, David, I did this because I just want it. Well, hold on. Hold on. That's not a sufficient reason if there is a cross on your back and you claim to be following Christ. The Bible says we should ask, what does God want? And then, how does this help me express who I am in Jesus? And then thirdly, what is the Holy Spirit making me to be? That's radically different from how we evaluate our decisions in our often secular outlook on life. And then number three, most importantly, whatever progress you see yourself making as a Christian in your knowing and in your doing, is it motivated by gratitude? 
there are two really wrong ways to approach growing in Christ. And one of them often leads to the other. Here's what the moralist does. The moralist will say, they'll, they'll see this graphic and they'll focus only on the top two. They want fruit without planting a tree. They want byproducts without a process. The moralist will say, man, I'm going to know more about God's will. I'm going to find out what it means to be a Christian, how God wants me to live. And then, you know what? I'm going to grow in my conduct. I'm going to start making decisions like Jesus. And they try really, really hard. Now, eventually they give up because you can only do that for so long. And they often end up as the immoralist. And the immoralist is only going to focus on the bottom half of our screen. And they'll often cloak it in language about grace. And they'll want to hear about grace in their preaching and in their music. And they ignore the rest of the Bible. They will focus on what Jesus has done for them. I am forgiven. I am loved. I am accepted. But they also do whatever they want to do. And often immoralists are born out of being a moralist for so long that they just give up because it seems unrealistic. And without the motivation of gratitude, it honestly is kind of unrealistic, isn't it? And in their frustration of not being able to see the progress that they wanted to see, they only focus on what God has done for them and they want to stop remembering what God calls them to do because of what he's done for them. But that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is not growing and becoming better, nor is it just being grateful for what God has done for you. The Christian life is being grateful for what God has done for you. And out of that gratitude, you grow in your knowledge of what God wants you to do, how he wants you to live, and you grow in your conduct and you start living more and more like a follower of Jesus. You see, gratitude is not an end in itself. Paul doesn't just call us to sit in God's grace. And revel in how loved and accepted and validated we are as if God was our cosmic therapist. Gratitude is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. And it's a means to this end of growing in Jesus. Of sinning less. Of doing righteousness more. Gratitude motivates our maturing in God's will. Because of what God has done for me in Christ, I want to know God's will as a parent, as a kid, how I treat my parents. I want to know God's will in my evangelism as a spouse. I want to know what he wants me to do. I want that to filter into my life because, man, look at what he's done for me. And then gratitude also at the same time motivates our conduct. I'm going to be generous to others like God calls me to be generous. I'm going to sacrifice myself for others. Why? Because look at what Jesus has purchased for me. I was on the slave block and he bought me. I was in the kingdom of darkness and he transferred me. I was in sin and he delivered me. I'm going to forgive others. Why am I going to forgive? Because of Jesus. Because I'm grateful for what I have in Christ. I'm going to fight lust and for purity in my thought life. Why? Because look at what Jesus has done for me. Look at what I have. I'm going to have a prayer life, and I'm going to regularly engage Scripture. Why? Because look at what I have in Jesus. Spiritual growth 
is maturing in knowledge of Christ and conduct in Christ, motivated by gratitude for Christ. Here's all that really I want to leave you with tonight. Are you grateful for what you have in Jesus? If you, if you know Jesus? And if you don't know Jesus, well, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. He will save you. But if you know Jesus, are you grateful? Is gratitude your motivation for growth? If it's not, if it's not, then all of the progress you try to achieve will end up disappointing you. You will either focus on things that you try to do that you will fail in, or you will only focus on what God has done for you and not what he calls you to do, and you will not grow. Spiritual growth begins with gratitude. So let me just ask you tonight, if you want to grow up, are you grateful? Are you grateful?